Hey everyone, so yet another impromptu episode of sorts. And while we're on the subject, some of you may have noticed that comments were turned off or disabled for the YouTube version of that last little episode I released, the one about how the naked baby from the cover of Nirvana's album Nevermind is now a grown man and attempting to sue the band. I just wanted to let everyone know that I didn't turn the comments off, at least not knowingly. I think it was something YouTube did. I've had a YouTube channel for almost as long as I've been doing this podcast, and I've never intentionally disabled comments on any of my videos. I looked into it, and apparently YouTube will sometimes disable comments if they think the content in a video may be potentially harmful to minors. Not minors with pickaxes, but small humans, you know what I'm saying. And so I'm guessing that might be the case here, uh, because in that episode I talk about how, once again, this guy as a baby appeared naked on the band's album cover, and how he claims he's now suing because he thinks that the photo where it's use on the uh, album cover constitutes child exploitation, and more specifically that he thinks it's child you-know-what. So you could probably imagine how the discussion of that kind of thing might flag the good old algorithm, so I'm guessing that's why the comments are turned off. And yet, strangely, the episode is fully monetized, so if you've never published a video on YouTube before, once you have either enough subscribers and or enough channel views, I forget the exact numbers. Um, I actually have another small channel where I sometimes read poetry and short stories, that kind of thing, and I believe that one still isn't eligible for monetization yet. But once you hit that magic number of either views and or subscribers, you become eligible for monetization, or rather your channel does. And if you go into your YouTube Creator Studio, I think that's what it's called, this kind of dashboard, you'll see a little round dollar sign symbol next to your video's thumbnail, and it will be either red, yellow, or green. Red means the video has been deemed unfit for monetization, probably because it's been deemed too controversial, or maybe it contains copyrighted content. Yellow means it's eligible for partial monetization, meaning maybe it's been deemed as being unsuitable for some or most, you know, sponsors or advertisers due to sensitive or controversial subject matter, but you still might get a little ad revenue off of it if you're lucky, you know, a couple of crumbs perhaps. And if it's green, it means you passed all the suitability checks and you're good to go. Full monetization. And seeing as how I'm often touching on third rail topics like religion, sometimes politics, sometimes even far out stuff like the occult and serial killers, most of my videos end up in that yellow limbo of partial monetization. So it's kind of weird if I'm right about them disabling the comments that they would grant this video, the Nirvana Baby episode, full monetization, and yet at the same time find it controversial enough to warrant disabling the comments. Uh, but who knows, maybe I was just being a flake and, you know, checked or unchecked the wrong box. That's always a distinct possibility, too. 
But anyway, moving on. I spent way too much time on that. So the impetus for today's episode was uh, I was watching a recent episode of Deep Fat Fried on YouTube. And if you're not familiar, Deep Fat Fried is a podcast that uh, TJ Kirk, a.k.a. The Amazing Atheist, does with his brother Scotty and their friend Paul, a.k.a. Paul's Ego. But it's a really good show. And every episode, they do a deep dive on a topic from history or pop culture, hence the titled Deep Fat Fried. It might not be for everyone because although it's very informative, it's also very irreverent and heavy on the profanity, but that doesn't bother me personally. On the contrary, I really like irreverent humor. But this recent episode of theirs that I happened to be watching was about the devil. And I have to admit I was a little jealous. For years now, I've wanted to do a documentary episode on the devil, how the concept of the devil evolved over time, etc. But it's one of those episodes I've just never gotten around to. And there's a couple of reasons for that, I think. On the one hand, it's one of those topics where I know I'm going to have to set aside a lot of time for research. And then also, since since I do kind of a topical show, there's always new things to cover and it just keeps getting pushed to the back burner. But what really caught my attention was they were discussing a relatively recent poll. I looked it up and I believe it was conducted in 2020 that suggests, among other things, that more people, at least among those who were polled, obviously, believe Satan exists than believe God exists. And I don't know how accurately these poll results do or don't reflect the feelings or views of society at large, uh, but still, try to wrap your head around that one, because obviously within the context or confines of the Judeo-Christian worldview, God is the author of all creation, including Satan or Lucifer, so no God, no devil. But in fairness, based on all the suffering and iniquity in the world, the problem of evil, theodicy and all that, theodicy just being a fancy philosophical or theological term for trying to reconcile or justify the existence of a benevolent God with the existence of evil or suffering, I could understand how someone might be tempted to believe that there's someone or something evil running the show, which kind of reminds me of the Gnostic concept of the Demiurge, this evil, insane, or misguided godlike being that created the material world and trapped spirit and matter. Uh, and then like myself, and probably like a lot of you listening, the problem of evil or suffering, as well as other factors, such as a general lack of evidence, might lead one to suspect that there might not be anyone at the helm. That as much as we might want to believe otherwise, that all this suffering might just be the product of a blind, indifferent universe, life feeding on life, temporary organisms whose fleeting lifespans are beyond minuscule in the grand cosmic scale, you know, being born, struggling, dying, and here we are, this species of self-aware ape trying to make sense of it all. And I know that sounds unbelievably stark and brutal, but I do believe that despite all that, you can still find meaning in life and learn or strive to make the most of it. Uh, but this talk about suffering and the brutality of nature reminds me of something I read earlier today that I wish I could unread or unlearn. I was browsing different articles about nature and wildlife online, and I happened upon a picture of a seal and a duck together. It kind of looked like the seal might have been resting its head on the duck's back. The duck didn't really look distressed or anything. 
It even looked like it was just kind of calmly looking into the camera with its head turned to the side. You might even, you know, have been tempted to think it was one of those cutesy, quote-unquote, animal friends, you know, kind of pics. But I had a sinking feeling because something seemed a little off. And I know how brutal certain types of seals, such as leopard seals, can sometimes be. On a side note, I believe this was a harbor seal. But I clicked on the image and it led to an article with more pictures from the same shoot. And yep, the seal killed and ate it. That was just a beginning frame where it was first seizing the duck. In the subsequent frames or images, it's just a total gore fest. It rips the thing apart. But that's not even why I brought all this up. It gets worse. But this time, as strange as it might seem, the situation was actually reversed. Where you had birds preying on seals. But I ended up reading this article about how seagulls, and I think it was Cape fur seals, but how seagulls will peck out and eat the eyes of live seal pups, leaving them blind and unable to forage for food. And then when the pups eventually die from starvation, I imagine, the gulls return and feed on the bodies. And if you're wondering where the mothers are, I blame the parents. Kidding. Unfortunately, mother seals often have to leave their pups for uh, prolonged periods of time while they go off hunting for food, leaving them vulnerable to predators. But my first reaction was, there is no God. And yeah, I know, I'm already an atheist, agnostic atheist, non-believer, whatever you want to call me. But it was one of those moments where the notion or realization really sinks in or seizes, you know, or seizes you. I'm like, what kind of good God would allow that? It made me think of Darwin in the, uh, Icu was it the Ichneumonidae, I think it is. Uh, this is from a National Geographic article, uh, and it contains the Darwin quote, which I've actually read on the show before. Parasitoid wasps, or rather one group of them called the Ichneumonidae, I think it is, are the subject of one of Charles Darwin's most famous quotations. And here it is. I cannot persuade myself that a beneficent and omnipotent God would have designedly created the Ichneumonidae with the express intention of their feeding within the living bodies of caterpillars. And I think there's still some contention over what the exact nature of Darwin's religiosity or lack thereof was. Darwin boarded the Beagle as a devout Christian. I believe he came from a kind of uh, a tradition of free thinkers, not really biblical literalists. I think his father and grandfather were nonconformist Unitarians, something like that. But Darwin himself had been baptized into the Church of England. And I know the modern Church of England, the C of E, is considered, I don't know if progressive is the right word, but is, you know, when compared to, uh, right-wing Christian evangelism here in the States, fairly progressive and maybe not, you don't equate it or associate it with strict biblical literalism. But, uh, and maybe it had something to do with his, uh, boarding school upbringing as well in that kind of religious environment. But um, the young Charles Darwin was devoutly religious and uh, believed in a strict literal interpretation of the Bible. And uh, supposedly it was his voyages on the Beagle. And, uh, you know, he was um, a budding naturalist, uh, was always sketching life, you know, wildlife, taking notes, making observations. And uh, supposedly it was the abject 
cruelty and the horrors he observed in the natural world that I think kind of moved him away from Christianity. And, uh, and obviously there's a lot of beauty and wonder in nature too. There's things like very heartwarming ex examples of the maternal instinct, even examples of animal uh, altruism and group cooperation and that kind of thing. But yeah, a lot of, like we've been talking about, a lot of horror in the natural world too. And, that, and I know he had a young daughter who died. I'm sure that didn't help uh, things, you know. But I believe his wife was still devoutly religious. And I've heard some people posit that at the time of his death, he was probably something more of an agnostic. But obviously, you can tell he wrestled with the problem of uh, of evil or suffering as well, kind of, you know, grappling with theodicy. And man, is this shaping up to be a dark episode. But hey, why not? Let's dive even deeper towards the, uh, the nadir. You know, uh, I was recently looking at the famous uh, Spanish painter Francisco Goya's so-called black paintings online. And I've always been darkly fascinated with his famous painting depicting Saturn, the Romanized version or counterpart of the Greek titan Kronos, devouring his son. You know, there's that famous story from Greek myth about Kronos eating his children, but Zeus survives because he's replaced with a rock or whatever. But yeah, so you have Saturn wide-eyed, and it's like, is that horror in his, you know, at his own action in his eyes, or is he just like, hmm, this tastes really good? But you have Saturn munching on the headless, partially dismembered body of his own son, and it made me think of how chimps in the wild will hunt and eat calibus monkeys, I think it is. They'll basically rend and devour them alive. Uh, that's some Attack on Titan shit right there. But I've always found that really disturbing on a number of levels. I think because they're both primates, chimps and monkeys, and because we're primates ourselves, it hits a certain kind of nerve and comes across almost as cannibalism. And also monkeys, despite being capable of vicious behavior themselves, some species at least, we tend to think of them as these cute little anthropomorphic, whimsical, almost childlike animals. So seeing them ripped apart and eaten alive is horrific. Not sure I needed to bring that up, but while we're already discussing the horrors of the natural world, I figured, hey, why not? But I think there's usually a couple of responses to the problem of evil or suffering that you tend to get from religious types or Christian apologists. One is the claim that we live in a fallen world, so it's our fault, we lowly humans. You know, the onus is on us, original sin and all that. Which, and I'm not the first to point this out, makes God seem even worse, like some kind of moral monster or cosmic ogre. Two people ate the wrong kind of fruit, and the punishment is to afflict the rest of posterity down through the ages with sickness, death, and suffering. Not to mention all the animals and the horrors they have to face, like we've been discussing. What the hell did they do? But yeah, pretty heavy-handed approach for eating a piece of fruit. Traditionally, I think an apple, but actually based on the region, I've heard biblical scholars say if the story was true, it probably would have been a fig or a pomegranate. I think the apple has something to do with a Latin play on words. Uh, the word for evil and the word for apple are similar. Is it like... Um, Malum or mal? Yeah, is it something like that? Yeah, I think it's malum. 
And I don't know if it was Bill Maher or someone else, but I remember someone darkly joking once about how if a person treated a dog or their child like God treats people in the Bible, we'd probably call Child Protective Services on them or, or something like that. And of course, there are a lot of biblical literalists out there, probably more than we'd like to believe, who do take... You know, these stories like the fall in the garden narrative, as well as the assorted miracle stories in the Bible, literally. But I should point out in fairness that there are many Christians who accept evolution and mainstream science, and who view the stories in the book of Genesis, as well as many of the stories in the Old Testament in general, like the fall in the garden and the flood narrative, etc., as parables. And of course, you could get into a whole thing about, well, where do you draw the line? If you're not going to believe in the Old Testament miracles, why believe in the New Testament miracles? And of course, you kind of have to believe in the death and resurrection because that's what the whole enchilada hangs on. And if you pull out that one linchpin, the whole thing collapses, you know? But uh, they're probably, you know, at that point, it's like, why not just believe in the whole thing figuratively? And there probably are people who do. Um, there's probably plenty of people who are culturally Christian. They might vag, you know, vaguely believe in some higher power, but they don't really believe in the uh, biblical miracle stories, literally, or they um, just don't stop to think about it, you know? And it does require a kind of cognitive dissonance, but there is that cafeteria Catholic approach where someone might be like, well, I'm not going to take the Garden of Eden story literally because that would conflict with my belief in, you know, human evolution. But I am going to take the death and resurrection story literally because it makes me feel warm and fuzzy to be a Christian. And if I don't believe in that literally, you know, what's it all about? Um... And then you could get into a thing about, you know, how literally were these stories meant to be taken in the first place? And, you know, you could go as far back as St. Augustine questioning whether or not the days of creation in the Old Testament were meant to be taken literally as 24-hour periods. And you have people like uh, a guy who I admire, Dominic Crossan. I, I've mentioned this on the show ad nauseum. I'm paraphrasing, but I remember, I think it was in From Jesus to Christ, the first Christians, that documentary series. But he said, you know, is it the case that these stories were meant to be, talking about the gospel specifically, I think, was it the case that these stories were meant to be taken literally and we're so smart as modern people we know to take them figuratively or were they intended to be taken figuratively to some degree and we're so stupid we insist on taking them literally and uh and he says he thinks it's the latter and while we're on this topic, it was interesting. I was listening to an episode of Unbelievable recently. Unbelievable, if you're not already aware, is a podcast slash radio show that airs on a Christian radio network. I think it's Premier Christian Radio. And it's hosted by Justin Brierley, himself a professed or, you know, practicing Christian. But even if you're a non-believer uh, like myself, it can still be a pretty interesting show because they often feature these kinds of, you know, relatively civil debates between atheists and theists. But I was recently listening to an episode featuring well-known Christian apologist William Lane Craig, and the focus was how to reconcile belief in human evolution with the fall in the garden narrative, or this idea that the human race started with two people made in God's image. 
And I probably shouldn't be surprised in a sense because William Lane Craig, even though I obviously disagree with him on religion and he says plenty of stuff that I take issue with, I nevertheless think that he's a you know relatively learned and sophisticated Christian thinker. But I was surprised by just how much he embraces human evolution. It was, you know, pretty refreshing. A lot better than the usual, if we came from monkeys, then why are there still monkeys, smart guy, you know? Um, and, and actually, uh, you know, sadly, an actual argument that I've heard parroted, you know, multiple times. The logical flaw being the assumption that evolution is a linear line instead of a branching tree with various, you know, shared common ancestors. But another response you'll get from religious types when confronted with the problem of evil or suffering, they'll say, well, you can't lay all of the evil or suffering in the world at the feet of God. Sure, there's things like natural disasters, etc., but much of the suffering in the world is the product of man's inhumanity, the man, things like war. And so that kind of suffering is on us, not God. God was magnanimous enough to grant us free will, and he can't be held responsible if people use that free will to commit evil, like the Holocaust, etc. But I'm like, wait, if God has all the omnis, omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient, etc., you know, if he's all-knowing and all-powerful... Wouldn't he have been aware ahead of time of how his plan was going to unfold, of every choice we're going to make? And if it's all part of some prearranged grand design, then perhaps you could even argue that he must have designed us to make those choices? Then does that even constitute free will at that point, or are we just like puppets unknowingly acting out a script? Or if he did somehow bake free will into the cake, once again being omniscient, wouldn't he still know the choices we would make, but still made us that way, even knowing those choices might result in the unjustified suffering of others? And if he's all-powerful, wouldn't he at least be capable of intervening in human affairs at any time, say to prevent a large-scale nightmare like, once again, the Holocaust, or a smaller-scale but still devastating tragedy like pediatric cancer, or say a child accidentally left to die in a hot car? Why doesn't he make the parents suddenly remember their child still in the car before it's too late? Or at least flip on the AC or something. A little bit of a dark joke, but still kind of a valid point. But anyway, this reminds me of that often used or cited, yet still nonetheless apt, Epicurus quote. You know, is God willing to prevent evil but not able? Then he is not omnipotent. Is he able but not willing? Then he is malevolent. Is he both able and willing? Then whence cometh evil? Is he neither able nor willing? Then why call him God? And I'm not trying to come off like I'm mad at Sky Daddy. I'm more pointing out the logical problems that arise when you try to posit the existence of a sentient, all-powerful, benevolent, you know, personal creator deity. There are other concepts of God. You can have an impersonal God, some kind of all-pervading force, something like you find in pantheism or Eastern religion. And as I think Hitchens once brought up in debate, there's all sorts of possible permutations. You could have a God and no afterlife, or an afterlife and no God, an evil God, multiple gods, etc., etc., and I remember one devil's advocate argument I used to propose when I was trying to figure out what would be the purpose of suffering in a universe created by a good God, you know. 
And uh, I thought maybe this is, you know, the argument I came up with is maybe this is supposed to be kind of a proving ground, boot camp for the soul in a sense, and that suffering builds character or makes you appreciate the good things more, which I think is true in a sense. Um, you know, where an empty stomach makes you appreciate food more, a brief bout with illness makes you appreciate your health more, knowing suffering yourself can make you more empathetic and compassionate, etc., that kind of thing. But I think that only goes so far. I don't think that can justify, you know, some of the mind-numbing horror and suffering experienced in this world like a parent losing a child, a village full of innocent people being washed away by a tsunami, etc. I feel like heaven would have to be pretty damn good for you in hindsight to be able to go, remember that time you let my kid die, big guy? It's all good. We're going down the beach for my ties. Are there beaches in heaven? I don't believe it exists, but if it did. Um, and is there danger in heaven, like for, for the sake of fun or excitement? Like, could you go surfing in heaven and say, uh, throw in some great whites, and then you get eaten by a shark and magically appear back on the shore like a, like a video game? I don't know. But let's finally move on to that poll. It's only been 24 minutes, uh, long-winded as usual. And so this site is arizonachristian.edu. And at first I thought they were just commenting on the poll, but I think uh, they might be behind it or be affiliated with the, um, the organization that conducted the poll. So yeah, this is Arizona Christian University, and it says CRC, and that stands for Cultural Research Center, Study shows Americans increasingly reject God, imperiling ability to understand COVID-19 crisis. And if I didn't already mention it, this article is dated April 21st, 2020, because as I think I already mentioned, the study was conducted or the results were published in 2020. And it looks like the article is actually by Dr. Tracy Munsell, Executive Director, Cultural Research Center at Arizona Christian University. Groundbreaking new research about American faith and worldview shows that a slim 51% majority of Americans believe in a biblical view of God, down from 73% 30 years ago. This new research is especially troubling, as many Americans are struggling to understand the COVID-19 crisis and are statistically far less likely to turn to God for answers. The latest research from the American Worldview Inventory 2020, a study conducted by the Cultural Research Center at Arizona Christian University, finds mounting evidence that Americans are both redefining and rejecting God. The report suggests that modern-day Americans' foundational understanding of traditional Christian beliefs appears to be all but gone, just when they may need it most. As ACU president Len Munsell, nepotism, I'm guessing, noted, what you believe or don't believe comes into full focus at times like these, when people are desperate for answers. As a culture, many Americans are questioning their own mortality, wrestling through questions of life and death, dealing with deep fear, but we cannot rely on our own understanding and individual wisdom. They are inadequate to understand the COVID-19 pandemic. All the quote-unquote gods that our culture creates can't give us the answers we seek. The God of the Bible is real and ready to answer anyone who calls, Munsell said. Our culture is so wrong about what is actually true about God. We are facing a crisis of belief that will outlast COVID-19 unless God in the truth 
truths of the Bible become our framework for understanding this experience. And to be honest, for some reason, maybe because it was cited on Deep Fat Fried, I thought that this was going to be more of a um, an objective kind of uh, scientific poll. I didn't know that it was going to be you know so strongly affiliated with a Christian university. But in fairness, just because it's affiliated with a Christian university doesn't necessarily mean that the methodology was unsound. Uh, maybe we'll see once we get to the statistics. But I'm guessing this article was meant for Christian readers and not me. You know, as a secular person, I'm thinking we need to worry less about what religion has to say about COVID-19 and more about what the science has to say about it. I think it was just recently on this episode that I talked about Josh Fairstein, and uh, is that it? I think that's how you pronounce it, and how he was preaching about how if you got Jesus, you don't need vaccines. You don't need masks. And we've been seeing that kind of thing since the beginning of all this. I remember there's a viral video about a woman being interviewed outside a church, kind of all wild-eyed, talking about how she she didn't need masks or anything because she was dyed in the blood of the Lamb or she was protected by the blood of Jesus, whatever it was. And now there's a whole long list of, you know, pastors and preachers who had thumbed their nose at COVID-19 and uh, who inevitably ended up dying from COVID-19. So, and I'll say, you know, you can believe in God and science. You can have a higher power and science. Uh, I'm not asking people to give up on God or a higher power. I'm asking, yeah, you can embrace your higher power, but please use some common sense and have some decency and just take some you know, common sense precautions during a global pandemic. Holy shit. And one thing that really blows me away is how some people seem to have come to confuse or equate selfishness with freedom. Like suddenly, you know, freedom means having a tantrum inside a Walmart because someone asked you to wear a mask during a pandemic or whatever. You know, it's what happened to worrying about People other than yourself and having a willingness to come together as a society to overcome a collective problem. But I do sympathize with people, whether they be religious or not, who are kind of, you know, who have been going through an existential crisis because of all this. Um, because I find it's even changed the way that I look at the world. To me, it was kind of a reminder that we're not untouchable. You know, I mean, I think there's this kind of arrogance or hubris that I know I find in myself, you know, I try to be self-aware of it, um, that we think somehow, you know, we're the pinnacle of human civilization. And we have all these modern conveniences and these amazing inventions. Everyone's walking around with these little, what are essentially supercomputers in their pockets that act like little repositories of all the world's knowledge and that let you, you know, communicate with people on the other side of the world with the press of a virtual button. Uh, we live in air-conditioned houses. We have MRI machines and life-extending medications. 
And I think people know that, you know, or realize that if we don't destroy ourselves first, that technology will continue advancing. But there's still a tendency to think that, at least in comparison to past civilizations and past generations, that, man, we've got it made. We're like the height of human civilization. It's almost like we're untouchable, you know? And, um... You know, maybe we kind of think about, oh, those poor saps back in Pompeii or with the Black Plague. But this has reminded me, we can be taken out, man. And I mean that on a couple of counts. On the one hand, all the political division and political instability of the past several years has really driven home the point for me that as much as we like to think we're the, you know, the shining city on the hill, a beacon to the world, that, you know, American exceptionalism and all that. Our society, our government can crumble and fall like any others. Empires have fallen in the past and, uh, you know, our society isn't necessarily any exception. In fact, I think, you know, recent events have shown us that the cracks are showing. And I'm not trying to get all political. I think even from a detached kind of sociological perspective, I think the events of January 6th, you know, whether you want to call it an insurrection or a riot, however you want to refer to it, I think the fact that you basically had a mob storming the nation's capital, erecting makeshift gallows for the vice president, who is a conservative Christian, by the way, you know, outside. Um, Yeah, that just, that goes to show for me that despite the veneer or illusion of security that our modern lifestyle might give us, that at the end of the day, we're mortal just like the citizens of any other nation in the world, and we're not immune to things like revolutions or coups, and our our government, our society, once again, could crumble, could fall. And what would replace it? You know, we're a country born in revolution, and I know it's scary to think about as, you know, a secular person, but there are people out there champing at the bit that their biggest dream is for there to be another revolution, uh, right-wing militia types, that kind of thing. And if there, if there ever was a successful revolution or some kind of Trumpian coup or whatever, you know, a successful one, yeah, once again, as a sane, secular person, what that might look like, what kind of government might ar- arise from the ashes or take over, uh, that scares me. Welcome to the United States of Alabama. You know, it's already in a... Texas has essentially outlawed abortion. That is so... Cr- I have a very complex or complicated view on abortion. I think abortion is inherently negative in the sense that you're terminating a developing human life. That's not a good thing. But I also believe in a woman's right to choose. And as I've said ad nauseum on the show, I think no one probably takes abortion as seriously as the women who make, you know, have to make the decision whether to have one or not. You know, I sometimes get the feeling from people on the Christian right that they think it's like, woohoo, the weekend's here, let's go get abortions, ladies. You know, it's like, often there's legitimate medical reasons why someone has to have an abortion. Maybe the fetus isn't viable. Maybe there's something catastrophically wrong with it. Maybe there's concern for the life of the mother. And in those cases, I'm sure no one's more devastated than the woman who actually has to have the abortion, you know? 
And the people who really scare me are the ones who don't even want to allow exceptions for the case, you know, for cases of rape and incest. Imagine some underage girl is raped by a family member and she has to carry the rapist baby for nine months or whatever it is. Uh, it's crazy. I mean, to me, in an ideal society or, you know, we should strive for there to be as few abortions as possible. The less abortions in the world, the better. You know, hopefully we can all agree on that. But we should be trying to achieve that by teaching young people, both boys and girls, to be fair. Because although the boy doesn't have to carry the child, he uh, he did 50% of the work. Or whatever, you know what I mean? He's, uh, he's a part of this too. So yeah, we should be teaching young people the seriousness of having a child before you're ready. And I know Christians, understandably to some degree, you know, or conservative types, whatever, parents in general maybe, don't aren't crazy about the idea of other adults talking to their children about sex. But it would be good if somehow, you know, we can kind of get parents and teachers on the same page. Maybe even, you know, if it's religious people we're talking about, maybe you can even get your local church involved. You know, people coming together to help educate kids about the seriousness of bringing a child into this world. And as a secular type who doesn't think there's anything, you know, sinful about sexuality, I obviously have no problem with, you know, teaching kids about safe sex, even making contraception available for, you know, at, at, when they reach a reasonable age, you know, maybe when you're talking about, uh, I don't know what age is appropriate, I'm not a parent, but somewhere into their teens or whatever, you know, but I get how parents would have an issue with that, even if you're not religious, because it's almost like, uh... Like, maybe, I don't know, people might have a fear that you're kind of tacitly giving permission to kids to have sex by making contraception available. But at the same time, it helps prevent unwanted pregnancies and, ultimately, abortions. And that's the, the kind of hypocrisy or the contradiction there, where maybe some, you know, conservative Christian types don't want anyone talking to kids about sex, but then they're going to get all draconian when it comes to abortion, when they could have helped prevent the abortions in the first place with uh, some, you know, sex education. But anyway, let's get back to that poll, and I'll skip a bit down. Let's see. So it says, in addition to the AWVI, which I think the is, is the American Worldview Inventory, I think that's what it stands for. Research identifying the stunning decline in belief in God in the past 30 years. The study also found Americans possess shocking views about God, Satan, the Holy Spirit, and the sinless nature of Jesus Christ. For example, Americans are more confident about the existence of Satan than they are of God. Overall, 56% I just, that was that really New Englandy? 56%, 56% contend that Satan is an influential spiritual being, yet almost half, 49%, are not fully confident that God truly exists, and 44% believe Jesus Christ sinned while on earth. Americans are also confused about the nature of the Holy Spirit, with over half, 52%, saying that the Holy Spirit is not a living entity, but merely a symbol of God's power, presence, or purity. 
But the thing about 56%, you know, thinking that Satan is an influential spiritual entity or being, that reminds me of something that happened uh, just this past Friday or Thursday. So you guys know how I work construction. Um, definitely not what I want to be doing. I'd much rather be podcasting full-time or doing something, you know, that has to do with my actual degree, graphic design. Uh, anyway... You know, I'll save my woes for another time. So I'm at the lumber yard and there's, uh, you know, while I'm being waited on, there's another guy next to me that another cashier is waiting on. And uh, the guy seems pretty normal. Um, this was in the town of Arlington, Massachusetts. And Arlington has actually uh, made it mandatory that if you're in a public uh, place indoors, you have to wear a mask. So they actually took that step kind of backwards. And so everyone's in there wearing a mask. And the guy, like I said, sounded normal. And he's talking about this story that was on the news about how, what is it? There's a new COVID variant that's been identified. I believe they call it the MU or Mu or is that a, I don't know much about Pokemon, but what was the name of the cat on Pokemon? Wasn't that a Mu or something? I just looked it up. Mewith. That's what it is. Okay. And uh, was I saying Pokemon? Is, is it Pokemon? I feel like I'm turning into a boomer here, man. Pokemon go to the polls. Giving myself the douche chills here. But what was I talking about before that weird Pokemon digression? Oh yeah, the guy at the lumberyard in the so-called Moo or Mew variant. The last I heard about that, they were saying on the news that... Um, Expert, you know, health experts or officials are keeping their eye on it, but it's not a real threat yet, but it's kind of a variant of interest. I don't know if there's been any further development since I last uh, checked in with the news. But yeah, so the guy sounded pretty normal. And then all of a sudden he goes, and I'm paraphrasing, you know who's behind this? He said, Satan. And you know how he's doing it? Money. And I'm like, okay. But it's funny, the cashier who he was talking to, I'm actually friendly with. And the guy happens to be a Christian, but he's also a musician. So we talk about music a lot. And uh, he plays in his church band or something like that. But it seemed like even this guy, the Christian cashier, was kind of giving the guy the eye like, okay, buddy. And before I forget, there's another... I do that sometimes with unscripted episodes. I'll be talking about something, and there'll be another point I want to make. But then I'm, you know, I'm talking about so many different things and going off on digressions that just gets lost. When I was talking about how, you know, about the subject of COVID and the kind of existential crisis it can instill in us, I was talking about how the past several years have kind of changed my view of the world on a couple of fronts. One was, you know, had to do with politics and realizing that, you know, our political system, our government, our society, how it might not necessarily be as stable as I once would like to think. But also just, uh, you know, I talked about the Black Plague and, and that kind of thing. This has also reminded me of our fragility as a species. And we're not immune to epidemics, pandemics, and, uh, you know, we could be called just like past societies or civilizations, like with the Black Plague. And uh, yeah, it's remind me of that too. And um, this should be the type of thing that we can keep under control. But obviously, not everyone's pitching in and we're backsliding. So, yeah. What'd they call it in Stephen King's The Stand? Captain Trips, I think. Uh, probably a poor analogy. Don't want to give religious people any ideas. 
I see there we just let that COVID wash all over us. There'll, there'll be like a few good people left and we'll fight the devil at the end. And sorry, religious people, I don't mean all of you, just the fundamentalists, <laughs> whatever. Uh, and then the other interesting thing with the poll was talking about how 50% or whatever of people believe that Jesus had sinned while on earth. Um, to be honest, I'm kind of agnostic on the historicity of Jesus. I can definitely believe that there may have been a historical figure, this kind of charismatic uh, preacher um, in the ancient world named Jesus of Nazareth or Yeshua. But as the mythicists suggest, I could also, you know, easily believe that he may have been some kind of composite figure that was dreamed up afterwards. I mean, was it? I think the earliest writings of the New Testament are actually uh, the writings of Paul. Those come before, uh, before the Gospels. So, I mean, I think some mythicists go a little too far with it. And, uh, but, but yeah, in general, yeah, I, I could see that there may have been a historical figure. And uh, I could also see that, you know, could be some kind of mythic figure that was dreamed up after the fact, or that followed some kind of pre-existing pre -existing template for, you know, a, a type of dying and rising god. And this is just complete conjecture or speculation on my part, but I used to wonder if maybe it wasn't the case that, you know, because the Jewish Messiah was expected to be a kind of warrior king, this kind of con earthly conquering figure in the kind of tradition of King David, that if there was a historical Jesus, when he ended up dying the death of a criminal, this ignoble death, you know, hammered to a, a Roman cross, uh, crucified, that his surviving followers may have been left to try to make sense of this, and maybe then the resurrection story arose. You know, who knows? There's so many different theories or things that you could speculate, uh, and it's frustrating for someone who's really interested in the ancient world and in the, the history of the early church, how Christianity actually got started. It makes you wish you could jump in a time machine and go back 2,000 years, you know? But if there was a historical Jesus, you know, there's so many different ways you can quote-unquote sin. And I'll put sin in quotes because it's a religious concept that I wouldn't be surprised if he did in some way. And I don't know if this actually holds water or not, but I found myself wondering in response to this claim that, you know, more people now think that Jesus would have sinned while on earth or whatever. If this might have something to do with the popularity of things like Dan Brown's Da Vinci Code, where we have the, the idea of a more carnal Jesus who actually has sex and has children. Um, I don't know if there's anything to that, but uh, it just kind of popped into my head while I was reading the uh, poll results. It could also be a reflection of, you know, if you have more people who doubt that the supernatural claims in the Bible are literally true, uh, people becoming kind of more secular, then uh, they might still think that Jesus existed, but doubt his divinity and see him as more of a historical figure, so more prone to sin, I guess. And then once again, there's that poll result that suggests that 52% say um, the Holy Spirit is not a living entity, but merely a symbol of God's power, presence, or purity. And that just makes me think of the uh, First Council of Nicaea. But I am way too mentally exhausted to go into that now. <laughs> I think way back in the catalog is probably... Um, 
one of the first shows I ever did, I talk a bit about the uh, Council of Nicaea and how um, there's a lot of, uh, and here I am going into it, there's a lot of misconceptions about the first Council of Nicaea, that it was where, you know, bishops got together to choose or select which books would be in the Bible and which wouldn't. I believe that took place afterwards with uh, Eusebius. Um, I think the, the goals of the uh, First Council of Nicaea were to determine the nature of uh, Jesus in relation to the Father, uh, the nature of the Trinity, uh, setting or establishing a date for Easter, that kind of thing. But, you know, with that, I think I'm going to call it a wrap, guys. So, as always, thank you, everyone, for listening. You guys know the drill. You can like the Facebook page, follow the show on Twitter. You can check out the YouTube channel. Maybe you're doing that now. And if you'd like to support the show monetarily, you can go to patreon.com slash theweekendout and help the show out for as little as 99 cents a month. All right, brothers and sisters, until next time. <laughs>